Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Hello and welcome to our fraud series of the Blackstone Chambers Litigation Podcast. My name is Luca Krishnanen and today I will be discussing what happens after you've obtained a freezing order. In particular, I'm going to look at the types of orders that you can obtain for further disclosure or further evidence. And we're going to be looking at this in the following sort of factual scenario. There has already been a without notice hearing, a freezing order has been granted, and that freezing order has contained the standard provisions for asset disclosure. Now, despite that, the respondent either hasn't given any or has given what seems to be insufficient disclosure. And so the applicant is considering what they can do, what further orders they can get from the court to try and compel or otherwise obtain the disclosure of further useful evidence necessary to make valuable the freezing order they've already obtained. As in that summary that I've just given, we're going to be looking today mostly from the perspective of the applicant, the party that holds and has obtained the freezing order. But the lessons and the practical tips that we're going to be dealing with are of course equally important if you're representing a respondent. Our talk is going to fall into two main parts today. In the first part, I'm going to talk about how you can get further disclosure orders. And in the second part, I'm going to talk about a slightly more rarely seen, but potentially very important remedy, which is the order for attendance at court to be cross-examined. So to start with, further disclosure orders. There are a number of bases in which an applicant who has already obtained a freezing order which has ancillary asset disclosure provisions in it, can go on to obtain further punchier, if I can put it that way, orders for further asset disclosure. One of the obvious bases, and the first that we're going to discuss in detail today, is a breach of the existing order. It's very well established, of course, that the court has wide-ranging powers to enforce, support, and make effective its existing orders. And of course, in the context of freezing orders, an order will have been made in the first place only because the court is satisfied at the very least that there is a good arguable case of fraud or some other form of wrongdoing. So if you are an applicant and you want to assert that there has been a breach of the existing order, which justifies the making of a further order for asset disclosure, there are three potential categories or types of proof or manners of proving the breach of the existing order that you can consider. First, where there has been a breach of the order which is obvious on its face. Second, where there has been a breach of the order which is provable by external evidence, and third, where the breach of the order is apparent from a serious discrepancy between the assets that should be there and the assets that have been disclosed. So let's break down those three parts in turn. 
The first, as I mentioned, is a situation where it is obvious on the face of the order that there has been a failure to comply. What I mean by that is, for example, where there has been some disclosure of the existence of an asset, whether that's money held in bank accounts or a trust asset, but there has been a failure to give details, for example, at an obvious level, the true value of the asset, or perhaps more importantly and more commonly, details of any limitation or restriction or encumbrance on the asset. A helpful case in this area is a judgment called Gerald Metals and Timmis from 2017. And that's a judgment which discusses the level of detail that needs to be provided by a respondent to a worldwide freezing order, which includes asset disclosure provisions. In short, the disclosure should give the nature and extent of the defendant's interest in an asset. If there is something that affects the properly practically realizable value of the asset, for example, a charge or some other form of limitation, that has to be disclosed. Another useful case is one of the many judgments in the litigation between JSC, Mezhdenarodny, Promyshleni Bank and Pugachev. And that confirms a long-standing principle that a respondent to a freezing order is under a duty to undertake reasonable inquiries to find out details about their assets and to give disclosure about them. It's not enough for a respondent to give an honest answer. They must have made reasonable inquiries. And if time has not permitted them to do that, they should set out the steps that have been taken. So this is particularly important if, as an applicant, you are faced with an affidavit which is purporting to give asset disclosure or to comply with the freezing order requiring asset disclosure, and it says NA, or unable to recall, unable to identify details, there needs to be evidence that reasonable inquiries have been undertaken to try and track down the asset or assets, find their location, and find out the sorts of details that we discussed a moment ago, including, chiefly of course, the value of the asset. On a practical level, and for a moment I'm going to dip into the shoes of the respondent, if you are preparing an affidavit of asset disclosure and there are limits on the information that you're able to provide, don't simply assert that reasonable efforts have been made. A bare assertion to that effect is unlikely to persuade the court. The evidence needs to address in clear, simple and practical terms what steps have been taken. So that is the first type of situation where we might say that there's been a breach of the existing order, where it's obvious on the face of it that there's been non-compliance with what the order requires. Let's move on to the second category, and that is where there is a breach that is provable by external evidence. So where, for example, you might have documentary evidence or witness evidence, which establishes the existence of an asset that has not been discussed or detailed in the affidavit provided by the respondent. A useful case and a useful example of what I'm talking about is the case of Kazakhstan, Kagazi and Arab from 2019. That's a case that we're going to return to a little bit later when we talk about orders for attendance at court to be cross-examined. In that case, there was a specifically tailored worldwide freezing order which required the respondent to give disclosure of, and I quote, any trust, 
discretionary or otherwise, or similar structure of which she was, at any time, beneficiary, settlor, or protector. In that case, the applicants, by way of evidence obtained from third parties, were able to establish that there were at least four trusts in respect of which either the respondent did not disclose their existence at all, or in respect of which she did not disclose the true and full value of their assets. So put simply, as an applicant, once you have got the affidavit from the respondent, you should be seeking to exhaust every avenue that you have to try and verify whether or not the disclosure that they've given is correct. A simple, if perhaps obvious starting point is to do companies house searches, search whether yourselves or via investigators for any forms of company records that may be available to see if the respondent has, for example, failed to disclose an interest, perhaps in the form of a shareholding in a company or other entity. If there are trusts involved, and where there are professional trustees that have been identified, contact them. If necessary, you might consider seeking orders for third-party disclosure from them. And equally, identify other third parties that may hold evidence. Because if you can show, by way of that sort of independent or clear documentary evidence, that there is an asset that hasn't been disclosed or hasn't been properly disclosed, then the court is going to be very willing to conclude that there has been incomplete asset disclosure and that there is a basis for making a further, more specific order for asset disclosure to be given. The third and final category of potential breach of an existing order is the situation where there is an obvious discrepancy between assets that were at one time held or believed to be held and the assets that have been disclosed by the respondent. A key case here is the case of the Public Institution for Social Security and Al-Rajan. That concerned, as many listeners will know, Mr. Al-Rajan, the former Director General of the Kuwaiti Social Security Institution, who was accused of corruption and having accepted bribes over a substantial period of time. In the judgment, it was noted that Mr. Al-Rajan received, either directly or indirectly, at least 513 million US dollars by way of secret commissions. When the freezing order was made and he gave or purported to give asset disclosure in response to it, the amount of assets that he disclosed came to 183 million US dollars. And there was, as the judge put it, a shortfall comparing monies received to assets disclosed of 330 million US dollars. A critical factor, which is reflected at paragraph 37 of Mr. Justice Jacob's judgment, was that the respondent, Al-Rajan, did not dispute that he had at one time held $513 million. So he didn't dispute the benchmark to which his disclosure was compared. And in the face of that apparently significant discrepancy, the court was willing to and did order that further asset disclosure be provided. It's worth mentioning a relatively recent judgment from July of this year, a case called Harrington and Meta, in which the court was confronted with a situation where the applicant said there was a similar sort of massive discrepancy between monies received by the respondent and the monies that they had disclosed. And the difference with Al-Rajan is that in that case, the respondents, some of whom I should mention I act for, 
gave evidence to the effect that they had not received the monies in the first place. And so the benchmark was not a fair or proper one. Despite that, his honour Judge Hodge, sitting as a high court judge, concluded that there was a good arguable case for the respondents having received the amount of money asserted by the applicants in the first place. And so there was a good arguable case in the judge's eyes of a significant discrepancy. So to round off this final section of part one of the talk, if you are applying on this sort of basis, a significant discrepancy basis for further asset disclosure, make sure you have clear evidence of the amount that was actually received and held at one time. You need to show a specific discrepancy, not just assert in broad terms a gulf between expectation and reality. That's something that I quite often see, especially where high net worth respondents or entities are involved, a generalized assumption that they must have more by way of assets. You need to be more specific and you need to show how exactly the discrepancy arises. So that concludes section one of how you might begin to go about getting an order for further disclosure after some asset disclosure has already been provided. So having covered that topic, the situation of breach of an existing order, let's move on to section two. And this is an entirely new basis on which you might be able to obtain an order for further asset disclosure. And that is on the basis of you having a proprietary claim. It's well established that if a party has a proprietary claim, they may be entitled to orders for what you might think of as tracing information. So information about the assets said to be subject to the proprietary claims and what happened to those assets if they were taken and if they were placed in various different locations, when, where and how, where are the assets now, in short. The court has a special jurisdiction to order that kind of disclosure, which goes well above and beyond the default asset disclosure, which comes with a non-proprietary freezing injunction, which is simply for the respondent to explain and give evidence as to their assets at the time that they're giving the affidavit. The special jurisdiction is, of course, part and parcel of equity's powers to protect trusts and beneficial interests. And the idea, of course, is to catch the funds before they flow any further. It's important to note that this jurisdiction can be engaged even where the initial freezing order is not itself a proprietary injunction. But if it isn't, you need to be prepared on an application of this sort to show that you have a good arguable proprietary claim. If you don't, or if there is any basis for attacking it on the part of the respondent, that is going to be dealt with at the hearing of this application. So be cautious in assessing your prospects of your proprietary claim. It's worth noting that even if you can get over that first hurdle and persuade the court that you have a good arguable proprietary claim, there are a number of further hurdles. First, the court's going to ask itself, is it necessary for further information and disclosure to be given, bearing in mind that the claimant already has the protection of a freezing order? One of the recent cases to consider this is a judgment called CPOD and De Hollander Jr. and others. And in that case, the court noted that it will be especially vigilant in considering the purpose for which this further tracing type disclosure is sought. Specifically, and I'm quoting 
from the judgment now, the court will be vigilant to prevent the abuse of seeking further evidence for some other purpose, such as to expose further inconsistencies, unduly pressurize a defendant who has already been cross-examined, yield ammunition for an application for contempt, or provide further material which might be of assistance, even if not actually deployed in the main proceedings. Uh, that quote specifically comes from paragraph 39 of an earlier judgment, one of the Pugachev cases, which was quoted in CPOD. As well as that, the court's going to ask itself, secondly, is this further tracing information? As well as that, secondly, the court is also going to ask itself, is this further information, the tracing information that you seek, urgently required so that it cannot await disclosure in the ordinary course? Third, the court will also remind itself of proportionality, and cases like Pugachev and CPOD emphasize very clearly that the court is only going to order this type of tracing relief associated with proprietary claims where it is genuinely proportionate, bearing in mind that an order requiring respondents to go back and provide potentially masses of information and or documentary evidence about what has happened to assets, potentially stretching back a number of years, could well be very, very onerous. So that covers this second section, proprietary claims and proprietary relief as a basis for seeking further disclosure. And thirdly and finally, within this first part of the podcast, I'm just going to touch very briefly on Norwich Pharmacal Relief. That's a topic that could fill a whole podcast. If you've made it this far in this particular podcast, you're probably delighted to hear that I'm not going to talk about it in that level of detail. But two points, just to remind you. First, it's often said that Norwich Pharmacal is limited to applications against an innocent third party mixed up in wrongdoing. It's not. The cases are clear that you can apply as against a wrongdoer, but your evidence must be clear as to the basis on which you are seeking Norwich Pharmacal relief. And the second point, just to highlight, is that the general procedure for seeking Norwich Pharmacal relief from the court is by way of a Part 8 claim form. That's well established and has been in the Chancery Guide, including in its previous iteration, for some time. But there are two authorities to be aware of which support the approach of using an application notice to seek Norwich Pharmacal relief within existing proceedings and as between existing parties to those proceedings. One is a judgment involving Santander from 2014, and more recently in 2018, Blue Power Holdings, a judgment from Mr. Justice Zaccaroli, in which the judge concluded that it would be a triumph of form over substance to require all Norwich Pharmacal applications to be made by way of a Part 8 claim form. So do just bear those in mind and don't forget the Norwich Pharmacal jurisdiction as a potential basis to get the disclosure that you want after your freezing order. That concludes Part 1 and so let's move on to Part 2 and the special jurisdiction or the rare remedy which the court can order attendance at court to be cross-examined. And I'm going to deal with this much more briefly than the first part of this talk. It is an exceptional remedy, but it is one that is almost always worth considering. Two very recent judgments that are absolutely vital in this context. The first, we've already mentioned, Kazakhstan, Kagazi and Arab from 2019. And there is also a very effective summary of the principles in the even more recent judgment in Privat Bank and Kolomoisky from 2021. And it's worth highlighting the following four considerations which the court is going to engage with 
when asking itself, having already ordered that a respondent should give disclosure of their assets, having already received evidence from them, which is sworn evidence, should we go even further and require that person to attend court and be cross-examined under oath about their assets? Of those four, point one is that a significant or serious deficiency in the existing disclosure is usually a necessary but not sufficient condition for ordering cross-examination. So you have to prove it, but by and of itself, it won't be enough for the court to exercise this exceptional jurisdiction. Second point, the question will always remain, is there a real risk of dissipation if this order is not made? This, of course, harks back to one of the central planks needed to obtain a freezing order in the first place. And it's essential when seeking this type of further order to satisfy the court that in the light of the deficiencies or defects that have happened so far, there truly is a real risk of dissipation. And so it's not enough, the fact that there is already in force a freezing order, the court needs to go further and require that a person attend court to be cross-examined in order that the applicant can get the information it needs to protect and make effective its freezing order. Third point, a change in the respondent's story may be a good reason to order cross-examination. And that's something that's touched on in the Kazakhstan Kagazi judgment in particular. So if the respondent has given differing versions of events as to why they do or do not have particular assets under their control, that could well be an important factor that shifts the balance in favor of this type of order. Fourth and finally, for our purposes, the court will always have regard to whether or not there is a less intrusive means to obtain the information required. Now, the courts have made clear that this type of order is not an absolute measure of last resort, but in practical terms, it's not far away from it. So if you are preparing an application for an order of this sort, you will always need to address what other steps you have taken, including, obviously, earlier applications for disclosure. So that concludes the shorter part two of today's podcast. I'm Luca Krishlanen from Blackstone Chambers, and thank you for listening to this episode after the freezing order. Thank you for listening to the litigation podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes and visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.